and welcome to LGIU Fortnightly. I'm Jennifer Glover. And I'm Inga Kohler. And we're here to bring you the latest from local government. We've got lots of international stuff this week. It's very exciting. It, well, we should. It's the World Cup time, which yeah. I know you're really excited <laughs> about. Oh yeah, I've been following every single bit of news. Aren't we? We're in it, aren't we? We're in it, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know who's not in it? Who? Not Germany anymore. <laughs> Not in Germany. Wow, it's all it's all drama. I just can't get enough of it. I'm definitely not watching Love Island instead. <laughs> I've I've been like I have been loving it. I do love a bit of World Cup. Um, even though the US isn't in it this year, uh, which I'm sure you didn't know. No, no. In fact, in fact, we are guaranteed a spot in the uh, in the semis. Well, good for you. Yeah, excellent. excellent um, go USA. Uh, no, I've been really enjoying it because my son, for the first time, is actually sit, sitting down with me and watching matches. Aww. And it's it's really That's fun. Nice. It's really fun. And he's really paying attention. And he's like, oh, that Harry Kane. Yeah. <laughs> that old rascal. <laughs> he can really kick a ball. Well, he can. He's, he's Mr. Golden Boot right now. But anyway... Let's we'll segue from the whole like <laughs> international flavor of the World Cup uh, to our kind of international work at LGIU. Yeah, so we have um, we have quite a lot of international stuff going on. Um, obviously, our core kind of LGIU offer was traditionally for England and Wales. We've opened up LGIU Scotland with an office in Edinburgh, and in the last year or so we've also opened up LGIU Ireland so that's the Republic and we've got an office in Dublin which is fantastic yeah um so we're doing all sorts of stuff around um the kind of British Isles um, but we're also looking elsewhere so we're we're in talks to be doing some work in Australia uh, one of our colleagues Andrew Walker who has previously been, been on the podcast um has been there over the last few weeks lucky um, andrew yeah <laughs> a little jet setter um and he's been um talking to some people there you'll hear from him later um so we wanted to do a little bit of a kind of looking looking elsewhere um seeing what english local government anyone who's really interested in local government what we can learn from abroad or other other ways of doing things basically i think it's really important because i think one of the biggest kind of policy blinders that England has had and this is 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 kind of looking at the US for uh any kind of comparisons particularly when you look at healthcare so there's a sort of a sense of like well we don't want the US system um without looking at uh, the many kind of really interesting and effective healthcare systems that are yeah, on sure. the continent and elsewhere um and also a kind of comparison uh with local government and it it doesn't just go one way. The U.S. tends to only look at England for its public policy stuff. <laughs> even, you know, even sometimes overlooking Canada, which is a bit weird. But on both sides of the Atlantic, this kind of weird blinkering around where we look for examples. But there's a lot of great stuff that's going on all over the world, and even just in places where they speak and publish in English, um, there's loads of stuff. <laughs> which, frankly, I'd have to limit myself to. But we need to, I think you know, as a sector and as a sector internationally, so local government internationally, I think we need to be drawing on each other's work yeah, and sure. comparing and, and, and learning about what's going on because uh, it can only be only be better. Exactly. So we've got a couple of interviews lined up 
So we've got Andrew Walker, who was in Australia, as we mentioned, at the Future of Local Government conference. He was speaking to John Hennessy of the Municipal Association of Victoria, which is the kind of umbrella body for um, the councils in that state. He was talking to John about the kind of challenges they face. They've got a fairly different system. Uh, They've got the federal level, the state level and the local level, um, and they're facing you know, slightly different challenges, but there's a lot of overlap in the in the relationship, the kind of often antagonistic relationship mm-hmm. between central and local. He was talking about the difficulties, you know, with federal government talking about people disengaging from the political process, but with the same token, not, not supporting not supporting local government to do that kind of grassroots work with their communities. And that is the backbone of democracy as our uh, leader. Exactly. And then, yes. um, So we've got Oliver Escobar, who is a lecturer in public policy at the University of Edinburgh. Our colleague Kim Fellows up in our Scottish office. She had a chat with him earlier in the week um, about kind of a similar theme, participatory democracy and where we should where we should go from where we are, basically. Fascinating chat. And this is a guy who want to know. Um, But we'll come on to that later. Yeah. So Scotland has had um, the Community Empowerment Act, which England hasn't had. Um, So he's been looking particularly at that. But there's lessons which we can draw upon more widely, I think. Um, And for any LGIU members, (laughs) you're you're allowed access to any of the LGIU Scotland briefings. So we'll drop a link on our website to the relevant briefings on the Scotland. Yeah. Uh, on the LGIU Scotland site around the Community Empowerment Act um, and the work that's been in community councils and some of the other things yeah. that he's mentioned. Yeah. So you can get up to speed on that if you're if you're interested. It's very interesting, really, actually. <laughs> um, and then we'll go on to talk a little bit about New Zealand local government. We published a briefing recently on that. Um, and then we'll do our kind of our roundup of the daily news and our recent briefings at the end. Let's Does do that it. sound okay? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here is Andrew speaking to John Hennessy of the Municipal Association of Victoria. So I'm here at the uh, Future of Local Government conference in Melbourne in Australia. John, great conference. Um, Can you start by telling us a little bit about what the Municipal Association of Victoria is, what you do? We're the umbrella body for the, the state's 79 councils. We advocate for two state and federal governments on behalf of Victorian councils and we also engage in um, uh, capacity building activities across the sector uh, and also getting councils to collaborate together more in terms of transforming the sector uh, down the path in terms of advancing towards digital government, uh, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do they work together particularly well? With things like uh, shared services, we have made some progress in terms of uh, having one, essentially one uh, collective library for the whole state of Victoria, which is about six million people, uh, replacing the previous situation where each council had its own uh, libraries. Uh, and we're just coming up now with joined up uh, maternal and child health services. It is very challenging and uh, a lot of cultural changes inside each organisation. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to change one person or one organisation, but we are slowly making progress. Yeah. Um, and so we've been talking for the last couple of days at the conference about um, community democracy, about participatory democracy um, as a way of sort of coping with lots of that change. What's, what's the kind of state of play of that with that in um, 
I guess in Australia, but in Victoria particularly. In, in yeah, look, we've, we've been convening these future local government conferences now for 14 years and, um, you know, looking at the role of local government and to facilitate the building of stronger communities and uh, a lot of talk then in the last few years about uh, the need for councils to be uh, devolving power to communities, uh, you know, to recognise the growing sort of disillusionment with, uh, you know, of the public with institutions. Last year we came up with a declaration which was reflecting the need for local government to, you know, to recognise the need for change and to be more community-led. Uh, and this year uh, we've started to come up with a whole range of examples of councils and communities doing great things. Uh, councils really taking, you know, um, sort of stepping back and making space for communities to be doing, you know, becoming more proactive and more uh, sort of self-determining. And yeah, so we've just just had so two days of hearings, a whole range of great case studies about that stuff happening now you know and probably five or ten years ago that wasn't the case now i think it's starting to assume a bit of critical mass across australia yeah. uh, and it's been very uh, positive and very sort of heartening to see the uh, the progress being made yeah any particular examples that stood out for you i was particularly impressed with them uh, the Beehive platform in uh, is it yeah. Bendigo? Yeah. But no, there was some interesting stuff being talked about. Yeah, yeah, no, look, lots of change, you know, sort of a tsunami of change occurring now across the world uh, with the advances of technology and, um, you know, the implications for local government, you know, uh, the local government has a choice of either sitting back and watching all this stuff happening or, you know, trying to intervene and uh, determine some sort of vision that, you know, perhaps is more sustainable and more uh, protecting of local communities rather than having the big global platforms uh, driving, you know, driving all this change and no one really knowing what's happening and uh, just being prepared to suffer the consequences. So, yeah, there were certainly some great presentations about the need for uh, councils and communities to be more, say, aware of uh, what's happening and also ensuring there's more uh, sort of sustainability for local uh, communities rather than just all of these funds and resources being being siphoned off onto the global platforms. Mm. Can you tell, one thing that, that's always a concern in um, local government in the UK is the sort of the relationship that local local uh, institutions and local government have with central government, um, and the sort of the, the the balance of power that exists there. It's financial, but it's also about um, power and responsibilities. Can you just talk about that in in an Australian context? Within Australia, we've got say three tiers of government: the federal government, uh, the states, and the and, and local government. Um, and I suppose the the federal government sort of drives their power mainly by the fact that. Yeah, most of the taxes are collected federally and then, just, and then just redistributed down to the states and down to local government. Um, and so local government's really at the end of the food chain and uh, in the last 20 years there's been a sort of gradual withdrawal of services um, from, by state and federal governments and so more and more things expected of local government but not the, not the uh, accompanying funding. Yeah, um, well, so, that's a familiar picture. Yeah, yeah, so the cost shifting you know, to local government has been occurring on a continuing basis. Uh, and I think at this stage we only get about one percent of uh, you know of total national uh, taxation uh, is in fact you know sort of returned to local government. Um, you know, despite the fact that we probably do you know a much higher percentage of the actual work, if you like, in terms of what's been delivered to communities. So we just think that the growing sort of, sort of community disillusionment with uh, with government is uh, especially felt you know by the federal government. I think, you know, people have really turned off the. You know the federal government's, um, you know, with a great deal of cynicism and disillusionment, and uh, I think you know the challenge is now for local government to be able to demonstrate that they are adding value and um, you know can play a key role in facilitating the building of stronger communities. Mm. And then I think, so conversely, once you have communities in a particular location, you know, sort of determining what they want to do, it becomes then much more challenging for state and federal governments to be pushing back against that. Whereas if the communities don't determine what they want to do. 
you really are just giving free reign to state and, and, uh, and national governments to be doing what they like and there's no real consequences. So I think it's a bit of a, a circular flow of, uh, you know, of logic here and the, the more or the stronger that local communities can become and more self-determining uh, and can keep the resources within, the, within their own local patch, uh, I think the more uh, sustainable you know, these, uh, the whole equation will become in the next five or ten years. But I yeah. think you know, 2030s, 2040s, um, the prospects can be very frightening unless we do have um, some change to the status quo of quite uh, massive proportions. Yeah, well there is um, a new Local Government Act coming in, right? Is that right? In, in Victoria, Victoria yeah. which has been voted through, I think, but it's not implemented yet. Is that right? Uh, it's just, just going through the, the, yeah, just going through the, uh, the two houses now. Yeah, okay. the, uh, the, the two houses at state level? Or, yeah, at yeah. the state level, yeah. So that's been you know a couple of years in the making and um, what are the key changes that's going to uh, look it's it's pretty much tinkering at the edges um, you know uh, sort of concern about uh, council behavior and um, procedural and voting matters and etc um, you know there is a uh, push for greater participatory democracy for councils to be able to demonstrate that they are being led by the needs of the community rather than the council determining what happens you know without any uh, due reference or sort of demonstrable um, response to the needs of the community. So there are some checks and balances there that weren't there before. You know, council plans need to be connected to the community plans and that sort of stuff. But uh, pretty much still tinkering at the edges. Um, you know, not really. Uh, I suppose it's up to the councils now to grasp the nettle and uh, be taking the initiative and uh, you know, being proactive rather than just sort of sitting back and responding to the you know to the dictates of uh, state and federal governments. Yeah, I mean, councils yeah. are past masters are completing forms and ticking boxes, you know, and sort of compliance reports, but that's not really the main game, surely. Mm. Just finally then, because um, I know that last year, after last year's conference, there was a statement, uh, a statement of intent, which I know we, I don't think we've drafted yet for this year, but what have you got as just a sort of, I don't know, what's your sort of elevator pitch for, for what's come out of this one so far? Well, look, I mean, last year was, was all about the need for, you know, to recognise the need for change and to be community-led. Uh, this this year we're saying you know the time for talking is finished. We need to start doing it. Yeah. So I think uh, this year you know we probably won't come out with a declaration, but we'll be starting to monitor uh, how many councils are actually doing things mm. you know in this space. And I think you know I was quite heartened by the reports back from the councils during the last two days where they've been saying you know they're planning to be doing you know it's a whole range of stuff to uh, to walk the talk you know to put put those sort of words into practice. So um, be good to sort of monitor. In the next 12 months, who's doing what, and to share that knowledge, yeah. uh, because I think you know we just have to have to try and get that critical mass of activity happening across you know 50 to 100 councils across Australia, and then, then I think you know we'll start at that um, to, you know to break the back of that challenge. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Thanks a lot, John, and thanks for having me here in Melbourne. Okay, so that was a really interesting look from Australia. And it wasn't all upside down either. <laughs> well, not that we know of. Not that we know. Andrew came back with his hair standing on end, so <laughs> I don't know. I think that's pretty normal. <laughs> um, yeah. So following that chat, very very closely related, we've got Oliver Escobar. Um, so he has been working on an ESRC funded project. On he's a, so what he's doing on this is like trying to connect policy and innovation with like the actual practice on the ground which is of course something that's really that we that we need to do and I think that's I'm I'm really impressed with some of the stuff that he's doing on that because he's connecting that kind of esoteric and academic stuff with what's really happening on the ground in local government which is of course a role that LGIU plays as well but it's great to see academics so 
thoroughly engaged with the yeah. idea that it has to go into practice. Really rooted. And he also works for the um, for the what work center in Scotland. It's like a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> it is a mouthful. It's probably you wouldn't want that on your business card, really. But um, but he does hear more of a mouthful. He leads work on participatory budgeting. Say that ten times go. fast. <laughs> Um, PB, as it's otherwise known exactly. for obvious reasons. So he is speaking to Kim Fellows. Here we go. I'm here with Oliver Escobar from the University of Edinburgh. Um, I think today we're really wanting to hear from you how best you might involve people and communities in decision making. Yeah, that's a very big question. Um, well, I think it depends, but I think you will get two types of responses depending on who you ask. Some people will place the emphasis on the role of communities themselves mobilizing and taking action and developing their own capacity to solve problems, develop initiatives and so on. And, and some people will place the emphasis on the public sector, public services side of the equation and say... Our institutions need to be able to engage people meaningfully in shaping the decisions that will affect their lives and the services they draw. Um, for me, it's a bit of both, but because in Scotland in particular, there's so much in the way of community action, social action, social innovation, um, we have growing social economy and lots of community um, grassroots activity and uh, the third sector as well, the community sector. I tend to place the emphasis on the other side of the equation, on the institutions. I just don't think we have institutions that can accommodate the expectations and aspirations of citizens who are no longer prepared to participate in some of the traditional ways. So for me, the answer is we need to reinvent our institutions and reform institutions that have failed to do that, like community councils, for instance. They need to be reformed so that they are fit for purpose. And then introducing new processes, which is happening in Scotland, uh, things like participatory budgeting, um, is quite promising, potentially, in terms of changing the way we see how governance takes place at the local level and the role of citizens and communities in that. Excellent. Thank you very much. I think because listeners will be mainly from local government, could you just give me a few ideas of what local government really should pay attention to? Uh, yeah, I... So at the moment, local government is um, under the expectation that the, the that the community empowerment act will reshape the way local government in Scotland works, and that's fine. There is a lot of stuff in the community empowerment act that local government needs to pay attention to, but in particular, I think there are two contradictions that are. Uh, particularly relevant to local government. One, that while this community empowerment agenda is expanding across national and local contexts, local governments have been shutting down community learning and development departments, uh, their capacity in terms of community organizers and community educators to support these new participatory processes. That capacity is not there. Um, so we don't have the infrastructure to advance some of these things. And that, in turn, can result in worsening uh, inequalities because 
those communities that have the social capital and the capacity to mobilize and take advantage of the act will do so. And those communities that are behind for a number of factors and circumstances, and they will be left behind because they don't have the resources uh, necessary to make the most of the act. Uh, so to put it in, in, in less abstract terms, communities where, you know, retired lawyers or retired academics like myself or, uh, well, I'm not retired yet, but <laughs> in the future, that, that, kind of, that kind of community that has that kind of capacity tends to do very well in a scenario where legislation like the Community Empowerment Act supports community action, community ownership, the development of community initiatives. But communities that are um, in some of the most deprived areas of Scotland, suffering a number of wealth, health, uh, and, and income inequalities, apart from the consequences of current austerity policies, um, those communities will be left far behind. And the paradox here will, will be that the Community Empowerment Act, instead of changing the landscape of inequalities across uh, local authority areas in Scotland, might increase it. Because there will be runaway communities that do even better. And those left behind are left even farther behind because of the growing up. So local government needs to take into account that the Community Empowerment Act has a lot of risks that need to be um, countered by measures put in place to avoid uh, further inequalities uh, and to pay attention to the fact that these things need an infrastructure. Community organizers, community development officers, community planning officers who uh, have the capacity to develop participatory and deliberative processes. Um, and that's very uneven across the country. and in. From my perspective, working with local government um, across Scotland, it's very, very, very uneven. And this is very problematic because what we often forget in um, with cases like participatory budgeting is that the reason participatory budgeting is becoming so popular in Paris, for instance, and the reason it was so successful in Brazil is because there was... Uh, body of community organizers hired by local government to make these processes work, to go on the streets, to the neighborhoods, mobilize people, bring them together, get them thinking collectively about the vision for their locality, and then putting forward proposals that could be approved and voted through the PB um, formal process. But that started at the grassroots with community organizers. Unless we do that kind of investment here, we cannot expect PB to have the kind of impact it had in other places in terms of reducing inequalities. So is there anything else you'd like to say about local government issues? And can I ask a supplementary question? Yeah, yeah of course. In times of austerity, mm. when budgets are tight, how can local government choose to invest in this work? <coughs> yeah, so I'll start with the, with the austerity question because, yeah, budgets are tight. But I was already doing research on these issues before the, the financial a crisis and the credit crunch. And back then, this was no nirvana of participatory democracy. We were not doing it when we had the money. And that, the excuse back then was, was of a different nature. And now we don't have the money. But the, the problem is that that question only makes sense. The question of, you know, this is expensive, should we do it? Only makes sense because we tend to think about participation as an add-on, as something that is nice to have, but not necessarily intrinsic you know, uh, substantially inextricable from the way we govern ourselves. Now, in the places where participatory processes make a difference, they are not an add-on. They are the 
core part of any policy making process. That's where the ideas are uh, discussed. That's where the options are uh, explored. That's where the evidence is uh, examined. That's where all the kind of dialogue takes place across the stakeholders um, and with citizens. You know, so unless, and, and if we think of it as an intrinsic part of a democratic governance process, then you know, we won't longer, we no longer ask that question because it's part of the infrastructure of democracy. In the same way that we don't ask, you know, should we really keep paying for uh, the Holyrood Parliament? We wouldn't ask ourselves that question. Um, this is how we do things, it's part of our governance. Um, so, but it's true that there are a lot of consultations that are inconsequential and meaningless uh, and, and not useful and, and put, and, and because in the end, policymakers are not quite sure what to do, what comes through uh, those um, consultations that tend to be not very robust and never engage a cross-section of the population. So we need to do less of those, less consultations, and when we do them, they need to be of a higher quality with higher participatory and deliberative standards. And I think that that will balance the books, because instead of doing 100 consultations, you do 10 on issues that people really care about, and you invest in the type of process that then gives you evidence that is actually useful, rather than the stuff that usually comes during consultations. Um, so to me, money is not the, the, the core consideration here. Uh, yeah, and it's also sometimes it frustrates me because we don't need to, you know, governments never need to explain to people why we should invest in roads and buildings so that things don't crumble and fall apart. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a given. But when you tell people, let's invest in democracy, which to me holds everything else together, people seem to be, what? Um, and that to me is very frustrating, especially um Today, when we are um, suffering a democratic recession globally, this is this this is the bigger picture, which I think is important for local government and anyone working in public authorities. Um, the democratic recession is going to be a term that we are going to start to hear much more. This year is the first year uh, that the democratic index, global democratic index, has gone down. That means that there are less democracies in the world today than twelve months ago. And for me, the most scary. Uh, evidence I've seen lately of this democratic recession is uh, a global survey of near 100 countries across the world, including the UK. Uh, it's basically, most of the world is the global value survey. And for the first time, the latest wave shows a rise in authoritarian values amongst young people. And that, to me, is the canary in the mine. That's an expression. Canary in the coal canary mine. Canary in the coal mine. There we go. You know, the idea that when people are asked, you know, would you be quite happy with a different system as long as it accomplished the outcomes you will want it to accomplish? And this, this notion of the, of the strong man, of course, it's always a man because all these things are highly gendered and problematic. But all this, this rise of leaders such as Erdogan in Turkey or uh, very timely today or, or Trump or, you know, the Tartan Philippines, all these, these ideas of authoritarian leaders that use democracy to put themselves at the forefront um, of destructive populism in, 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 in all these cases I've mentioned, all of that is not a, an isolated sy symptom. There is a growing race in authoritarian values like nothing we've seen since the Second World War. So, and to me, democracy and your engagement as a citizen with democracy starts locally. And hence, the foundations um, for combating this global uh, democratic recession, for me, start with local democracy and the role of local government in 
helping us to uh, bring our institutions into an upgrade for the 21st century. We cannot, um, you know, we need to accommodate um, citizens who are no longer happy with the traditional institutions and are much more educated than ever before on a global scale, much more critical, much more, uh, much less deferential to traditional authoritarian uh, authoritative forms of power. Um, and because of that sort of distrust and cynicism of, uh, uh, about power and institutions, the risk is that in the next few years we are going to see ourselves in, in, in reacting rather than so reacting to some of the nasty effects of lower turnouts in elections, lack of mandates, legitimacy crisis, and so on and so forth. Whereas the opportunity now, not just in Scotland, it's happening elsewhere, is to try to reimagine how we create institutions that can accommodate the new forms of participation that citizens now expect that go well beyond the spectator game of democracy as a game of political parties and elites. It needs to be something more substantial that helps us to uh, be proactive rather than reactive in the face of the democratic recession. Perfect. Thanks for sharing your views with us. Great. Um, he's a really fascinating guy but some terrifying stuff that he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Especially towards the end, the, the, kind of the democratic recession stuff. And I, I, I agree, we will start hearing that kind of, yeah. that phrase used and seeing the, the impact of it in, in the disengagement. We're publishing uh, an essay in August, a lot, one of our long reads on in the trust theme. And it's quite likely that we'll be touching on some of those issues. Because mm. um, everyone wants some happy, fun, jolly... Um, Summer beach, reading. Beach reading. <laughs> uh, nothing like, you know, predicting that we're all going to slip into some kind of authoritarian nightmare to make your uh, summer holiday fun. Well, it isn't summer about recharging and bringing in new ideas. Well, so, yeah. You know, <laughs> so we can reconnect you with the important things in life. And well, that's pretty important. That is pretty darn important. I yeah. think, I think, I love what he said about, you know, nobody questions why there's investment in roads yeah. and bridges and even um, increasingly Hollywood digital and, but we don't really, but we do question the investment in the kind of democratic infrastructure and yeah, it could yeah. be, it, it always needs it. As, yeah. I mean, I've certainly been struggling and banging my head against the wall just on the open data aspects of our local government election results and candidate data and it's much harder than it needs to be and it would require such a small investment to make it so much more transparent yeah, yeah. um but I it's mean, just it's not seen in those terms no as you're saying it's no. seen as you know not intrinsic it's a kind of add-on and nice to have whereas we would argue that it's more it's more we, we have to keep that democratic yeah. hygiene up and have to keep that kind of investment yeah. in what we're doing so yeah i mean a really interesting guy um and i i hope we hear more from him yeah so this links nicely to the recent briefing that we published for our members on new zealand local government so this is kind of a this is a really interesting one so central government in new zealand have decided that they are going to have their policy focus around well-being. So everything's going to be focused around well-being. And bless them, um, they're saying that that needs to link through to legislation for local government as well, so that local government's prime focus should be well-being, which, of course, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with. Yeah. But the problem is, is that how do you measure well-being and 
I mean, this will be of no surprise to our local government listeners. Local government feels a bit unsupported in the way that... Um, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a theme emerging in the international <laughs> work, isn't there? <laughs> um, the, you know, not necessarily a lot of help in putting bringing that well-being focus into play in the local area. And, of course, we would argue, and of course we're right, that if <laughs> if you... If you want to have a focus on well-being at a local area, it needs to be really, really rooted in that local area um, and really focused on what people need and want. And it takes us back to that kind of what Oliver Escobar was saying around consultation and not being all a bit worthless, really. Yeah. I, I don't know that I completely 100% agree with that, but... To say, actually, what we need to do is to build that into the fabric of what we're doing um, on a day-to-day basis um, and how we deliver services. We need to have that kind of citizen voice in that. And that reminds me of what I was doing yesterday. So I was chairing, hosting a video session for CLG.TV. So it's web TV for local government people. Not run by us, but it's they have me on regularly, so you know it's quality. Um, but we were talking about service design in local government and the importance of engaging users and people on staff and all the other kind of players in actually designing services that are actually fit for people. So in a sense, making sure that that democratic voice is really there and a strong link through all your public services yeah for sure I think it's a really interesting way of focusing in on all the challenges that local government faces using this lens of well-being because essentially that's that's what we're that's what we're working here for, for. Yeah. <laughs> but that will mean a completely different thing in different places yeah and or it should to, do it, it should, should do. Yeah, yeah exactly and it I think is it's a really good way of kind of focusing in on the differences you you can't say well-being in one place is the same as in another place rural urban yeah rich poor where you have older yeah. concentrations of older people it means versus a completely different thing lots of families and but of course you know everyone wants to you know enjoy their lives and uh you know people want to be healthy and happy and there are commonalities for everyone but how that's expressed and achieved yeah can be and where the different. gaps are and where you know you need intervention and things are completely different and you won't know till you ask exactly so yeah. widening out our focus from the in well <laughs> so narrowing our focus from the international back down to the, the national this is what really matters <laughs> um we're looking at the some of the briefings we published this week and some of the daily news articles that we thought were most interesting. First up, we've got something on public service mutuals and how they've been going. So there's a really interesting briefing on these um, public service mutuals. And uh, these are what what people sometimes call as like spin outs from public sector. Uh, so this happened a lot when um, maybe they wanted... Uh, the, the business to continue or a particular service to continue but couldn't really justify it in terms of budget because um, obviously in a lot of cases it's a big pension deficit yeah. is, is what's kind of driving this. Uh, not always, but that, that can be a big part of it. Um, so spinning that, that service out, um, which means that you're able to retain 
the skills and the knowledge and the ethos of the people who were working uh, once for local government, but now are still delivering kind of the same service. And they're not as kind of constrained or fettered by local government rules. So they can be a little bit fleeter of foot. And they don't necessarily have to make money or a lot of money because they could be community interest corporations um, where they just kind of need to break even. Um, so it's a this briefing is kind of a review of how things have gone so far, and it looks like pretty well. That's good. Yeah. That's good news. Um, overall, uh, I'm sure there's some bad news cases here and there, but um, actually the people who work for it are very happy, apparently, in, a, in an employee survey. Um, they like the flexibility. They like the kind of fleetness of foot um, that they have, and they've not been – uh, you know, too upset about the kind of downgrading or change in their terms terms and conditions. That's really so, interesting. Um, no, I, I bet there's some stuff to unpick about that. And it's never not traumatic to go through yeah. a yeah, situation like that. So I don't want to make light of it because that is, you know, people in local government will, of course, have lots of experience. If they haven't gone through it themselves, which seems kind of amazing uh, a kind of big restructure um they will certainly know someone who has and I, you know i've lived through it myself and it's it is it's hard it's hard so um you know not to discount that at all but there's a kind of a you know there's other ways to do uh what we do and to help it you know work for community well-being yeah yeah, yeah. which is awesome and so the government central government is says yippee and has said that there's going to be some more money to support innovation and development of these kind of businesses brilliant so going away from the kind of the technical stuff we obviously want to cage for our newer elected members who Absolutely. have recently been um, started their posts um we have a swift read briefing which is our new kind of as the name would suggest swift read um, <laughs> um, on business rates. On the business rates retention. Which is just mind-blowingly complicated. So I don't envy you trying to get your head around this for the first time, but we're trying to make your life a little bit easier. So do check that out. That's on the website yeah, it's if you remember. And yeah. we, we, tr- we did the Swift Reads first in Scotland. Yes. Innovation, crossing borders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a real border, but... <laughs> the, um, but yeah... I don't work on the finance stuff. I obviously am aware of local government finance. I know that this is crazy complicated. Yeah. But and I, the, I think the thing is it's changing all the time as uh, well. So once you've got your head around one kind of system, there's another one thrown into the mix to discuss. Well, if you read the Swift Feet, you could talk entertainingly about business rate retention at any cocktail party across the land. I've tried it and it can't be done. I'm telling you that now. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, listeners, if you have passed the cocktail party challenge, please let me know what how it went and how you managed it because I've bored people to tears talking about it at social events. Not a good conversation starter, I have to say. <laughs> I find it interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's vital. Do you, do you make the link to tell them how vitally important local government oh, yeah. funding is? I do, I do try. It just, it's like a kind of, a veil is drawn over their face. 
Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could talk about the World Cup instead, some football yeah, instead. I'll probably do popular culture. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, if you found a great way to talk about this that yeah. entertains I mean, people. I mean, it's, on a more serious note, that is part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah. We can't articulate in a way that makes people want to know or even and they, they need want to know. know like, that it's so complicated, we can't get this message across, like, how difficult the situation is that local government's working in. So, yes, in all seriousness, if you've had a way that's really, really been effective in speaking to the public about local government funding, we'd love to hear it. And how can they get in touch? Tweet us at LGIU or send us an email, info at lgiu.org.uk. Yeah, those are the best ways. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We really would. So next up, we've got an item in daily news, which is covering the heat wave, which, although absolutely glorious if you're able to sunbathe outside, has caused some serious problems across the country with road buckling. Like so, road buckling. Like the asphalt just melts basically and softens and creates can create fissures in the asphalt which then leads to greater potholes later. So, by the way, I finally did my pothole blog. Yay! Yay. <laughs> it's up for everyone to see. So you can see all of the uh, the detail about the technical side of potholes. Yeah. Um, and, and a song. I put a song in it because Ireland, going back to the international theme, they have a number of songs about potholes. Really? And Holy Ireland and stuff. And some of them are quite catchy. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're a national treasure. <laughs> well, they, I mean, the songs are complaining about them. And okay. I, I don't know that Ireland has, like, more potholes than other places. But they sure do like to sing about them more, um, which is fabulous. Yeah. It's fabulous. So there's a link to one of those on the on the pothole blog as well. But the heat wave issue is, is, is serious business as well. So it's a serious risk to health, particularly for vulnerable older people. And while we're not going to go into the care crisis on this podcast because we've talked about it before and we will talk about it again um it's something that really affects local government in some quite important ways and councils have to pick up the pieces on on that and there's obviously also the fires the fires at the moment yeah which are getting quite serious um and obviously local government plays its part along with the other agencies to try and evacuate oh. people make sure people are where they well need to informed, be well informed the kind of emergency management side of things absolutely so local government is it plays a huge role in any kind of environmental disaster or trouble um so but we need to i think we need to be a little bit more this is local government. This yeah, is what, recognize you know, the contribution that's made. Yeah. yeah. Um, and not be shy about it, you know, because, of course, you don't want to, like, go out for dinner on someone else's suffering. But at the same time, people need to know how important local yeah. government is yeah. to dealing with these kind of crises. But, I mean, you know, if you can enjoy the hot weather, do enjoy the hot weather. I do love that... Um, Councils are sending out gritters. Yeah. Including... Which I think a lot of them have been tweeting because there's been concerned residents. (laughs) Very confused. It's so hot. Why are they out gritting? (laughs) 
but they've been gritting using rock dust, I think. Yeah, to, to help. help the asphalt, the, that kind of buckling, the uh, melting of the tar in the asphalt. Yeah. yeah. One of the gritters in Doncaster, I think, which is called... David Plowey? Yeah. Or David Plowey. <laughs> David Plowey. Obviously. Oh, have you seen the American <laughs> pronunciation? Anyway, I was like, that makes no sense. Oh, okay. David Plowey. Now I get it. Um... Yeah, and that was named by the public. Oh, was it? David oh, Plowey. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 So David Plowey is out on the roads spreading rock. Stardust. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And finally, we've got a piece on, um, I had no idea this was happening, but apparently we were, we're running out of carbon dioxide supplies, um, which is affecting drinks manufacturers and poultry producers. And Weatherspoons has warned that it may run out of popular beer brands within the next few days. So I had no idea this was going on. Yeah. I always thought that, you know, there was all these industrial processes going on that had a, a CO2 as a, a kind of... A byproduct. A byproduct. Of the manufacturing part. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. So um, CO2 is generally not made. It's a... Well, it's made, but it's a, as a byproduct of other things. Um, and it turns out that some of the big manufacturers that also capture and sell on CO2 were um, down for the summer, were doing refitting. Um, there was a couple of other market situations where there was less demand for certain things. And so um, those not as much was being made. And so the CO2 reduced. So it's turned out to be some kind of weird, perfect storm of no CO2. So if you want to watch the football and have an ice cold lager, you might be out of luck. But if you're a fan of real ale, however, yes, <laughs> then you don't need the CO2. Um, and naturally it, a little bit, uh, a little bit bubbly. Yeah. yeah. And if you're at the LGA conference next week, you are in luck because we are hosting our reception with camera with camera who's the real ale organization and there will be real ale available so come down there might be some limited other fizzy beverages yes um but obviously there'll be plenty of real ale still they may not be fizzy anymore they may not be flat (laughs) (laughs) but the real ale will still be good um and so that's the evening of the 3rd of july in birmingham as a fringe of the lga conference if you want to come along, then do get in touch. Um, email us at info at lgiu.org.uk um, and we can confirm your place. Yeah, I'm not going this year. Oh, looks out to be really nice. So I won't be there. Um, this <laughs> we'll is, have a real L for you. <laughs> uh-huh. This is actually one of my absolute favourite events of the year. So I'm really sad oh. to be missing this one. <laughs> but I have parenting duties. Uh, bring them along. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Stay out in Birmingham. Real ale or child. Difficult mm. choice. Well, um, Jonathan chose parenting for me. He thought I was making the wrong decision. <laughs> made me stay home. <laughs> I was going to go drink the ale. Thanks, well, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll uh, take some pictures. We'll tweet them. Oh, you absolutely. Like yeah. There. Yeah. Okay. I'll have one at home. Excellent. All right. That's about it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. See ya.